0: God, we ask you that you would just speak to our hearts this morning, that you would inform us, uh, reveal to us, God, show us who you are. God, we thank you that we don't have to speculate and that oftentimes the speculation that we have about you is ill-informed, it's wrong, it's shaped by our own sensibilities and our own broken desires, and God, at the end of the day, those images that we have of you really can't save us because they're not real, They're, they're fabricated, they're made up. And, God, what we need is a true revelation of who you are because only that will save us. So we commit this time in your hands. God, we pray over the next couple weeks coming up to uh, Easter, before that, Good Friday. God, I pray that you would continue to really begin to shape and reshape our thinking and our understanding as to who Jesus is. So we commit this time in your hands. and We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you guys have been with us for any length of time, you know that we actually just finished a series going through the book of Ephesians. And if you guys don't have Bibles and you guys need a Bible, we'll, we'll be getting those to you in just a second. So if you have a Bible, if you don't have a Bible and you need one, raise your hand. We've got some ushers that would love to get you guys a Bible, um, and then we'll get to that in a moment. Um, but quick little background. So um, obviously with Easter coming up, we are entering in or we are actually technically already in the season of uh, the church hit calendar, which is kind of historically been known to follow kind of lots of different loops and whatnot, but we are in uh, historically the season that's called Lent. Uh, The word Lent basically comes from an anglo saxon word, which means lengthen, and it's typically around the time of year when the days begin to get longer, right? Most of you guys have already known that because you have, uh, uh, especially as that began last week and you're hiking a little bit later, you're surfing a little bit later, you're doing all sorts of things. Later, because the days get longer. But the idea is that that sort of compares or connects with the season of Passover. Passover, historically, is always connected with the most important day of the Christian's year, which has historically been known as Resurrection Sunday, or the resurrection, the the event in which God resurrected, raised his son back to life from the horrible death that he suffered on the cross, So this season typically is called Lent, and it's usually a time whereby people devote around 40 to 46 days of just focusing on Jesus. It's oftentimes um, combined with fasting as well as feasting. The whole point or the aim behind it is to really tune our hearts strategically or to focus our minds specifically upon who Jesus is. And we as a church, we want to do that. We want to take a moment to kind of get into sort of the rhythm of that Um, The church calendar, typically, is not necessarily something that's uh, prescribed within the scripture. In other words, there's no uh, scripture that states you must keep according to a particular church calendar. And, And yet we have the freedom to do that. And the reason why we do that is because it's a tool. It's a tool to help us. Focus. Um, Some wonder, like, is that tampering with tradition? The fact of the matter is, is that no. I mean, it can, of course, become tradition, where it becomes traditionalistic, whereby we just do things rotely, whereby there's really no meaning or purpose to doing things, and those just become empty sacrifices. But I think if we are able to tune our hearts, to understand what the season is about, to focus on Jesus, to train our minds to think about, to meditate, to consider who Christ is. The hope is, is that this season will take on a deeper experience for you, a deeper, rich experience in understanding who Christ is during the season. So especially when we come to the period or the time around Good Friday, which uh, Gunther has shared that we're going to be celebrating or remembering the death of Christ here on Good Friday, um, as well as climaxing in Easter Sunday or Resurrection Sunday, where we're going to be meeting at the pack and celebrating the fact that God did this uh, tremendous miraculous event whereby he raised his son Jesus from the dead. And that is the most definitive event for us as Christians. In other words, it's the most important holiday for Christians. And so What we want to do coming up to the season of or up to the actual event or the day of Easter Sunday is we want to really take a few weeks to consider the life of Jesus. As I already mentioned, we finished the book of Ephesians. We've been in that book for about a year, a little over a year. And so we've got a few weeks where we just want to focus our attention on looking at the life of Jesus. Um, So if you think about this, we'll take a look at four specific realities of the life of Jesus. One, we'll take a look at the life, suffering, the death and ultimately the triumph, the triumph being the resurrection. The life of Jesus, the first three weeks, so today, next week, and the following Sunday, what we'll do is we'll take a look at specifically three elements of the life of Jesus. One, we'll take a look at today, which is the words of Jesus. What does Jesus have to say about himself? Next week, we'll take a look at the works of Jesus. What did Jesus do? That was so significant. I think a lot of us have these ideas about Jesus. We're like, I really like Jesus. He's awesome. He heals people with blind eyes. He makes really good food for people uh, who are really hungry. He walks on water. Jesus does these awesome works. And then finally, with regard to the life of Jesus, we'll take a look at the actions of Jesus. And the actions of Jesus, I would say, are a little bit uh, nuanced from the works and the words of Jesus in that the actions of Jesus is Jesus enacting something or playing something out. It's very similar to the way the prophets of the Old Testament would act out certain scenarios as sort of a very tangible, visceral way of demonstrating a truth or a message that God wants to convey. One of the examples of this would be Hosea. Hosea was asked by God to marry a very promiscuous lady. She was a prostitute. Uh, So uh, Hosea ends up marrying her. So the question is, why did God ask Hosea to do that? Why did Hosea agree to do that? Well, because Hosea, he was a prophet. I mean, he spoke for God. He agreed to get, getting involved in this action of living out, basically a living parable is what the actions were. And so it's as if God was saying, look, look uh, if you're ever wondering, I'm in a marriage, and if you're ever wondering what my marriage is like, so this is Yahweh speaking, Yahweh saying, if you ever wonder what my marriage is like, all you got to do is look at the marriage of Hosea. That's what my marriage is like. You're like, God, who are you married to? I'm married to Israel. I loved her. I've done everything for her. I've purchased everything she can imagine. I've been literally the sustainer of her life. I took her from you know, absolute poverty and given her everything, and yet she has repeatedly, consistently sold me out for other gods. And all you've got to do is look at Hosea, because Hosea is living that. It's an action that Hosea is involved in. Jesus does these actions. One of the chief examples or actions that Jesus does is on Palm Sunday, and that's what we'll be taking a look at. So the chief action, one of the greatest actions is Jesus uh, will be marching into on the back of a donkey into Jerusalem. There's a reason for that because Jesus is engaging in these prophetic actions. And then what we'll do on Good Friday, again, take a look at the death of Jesus, and then ultimately on, Good, on Sunday, we'll take a look at the resurrection, the triumph of Christ over the grave. So hopefully this Lent season will give you guys enough nourishment to kind of cause you to sink your teeth, if you would, spiritually into the person of Jesus, because that's what this season's all about, is really it's about Jesus and what God has done through his son to bring about our salvation. So today, we'll take a look at specifically Jesus's words and what Jesus has to say about himself. This is really important to really spend some time to think about what does Jesus have to say. Because I think the reality is that if you or I were to kind of go around and take a poll, if we were to go down to downtown slow, uh, depending upon where we would go, and we would just kind of did a poll and asked, you know, 40 people or 20 people, you know, what do you say about Jesus? Who do you think Jesus is? I think you would be absolutely surprised by the amount of content that you'd begin to dig up. Because, uh, in other words, what you'll find is that nobody is just sort of apathetic with regard to a response. I think even if we were to do a poll in this room and ask people, who do you think Jesus is? Every one of us, to some degree, would have some form of an opinion. Our hope is that the opinion would be biblical. But the fact of the matter is, is that because as a church, we, as we gather, there's always people that are in here from various different phases in their journey of following God. Some of you guys have been Christians for a long time, and your answers may be completely orthodox and in line with uh, Scripture and the Bible. Some of you may be... Uh, Recently converted and walking with Jesus and your understandings may be a little bit, you know, uh, kind of a hybrid with biblical orthodoxy as well as, you know, weird pop culture type images of Jesus. And some of you are here and maybe you're not even Christians and your ideas and your concepts and your understanding of who Jesus is uh, may be completely antithetical to the Bible. But we're glad you're here because our aim is to try to understand who Jesus is. So here's a couple of examples. I was kind of thinking about some of the different examples and ideas that people, especially in our culture, think about with regard to Jesus. Uh, A lot of the different Jesuses that kind of arise or emerge within our culture. Some of them, I think, one in particular, especially within church context, is sort of what I would call the Sunday school Jesus. And this is a Jesus that, in a lot of ways, is really, really nice. He's always kind of depicted as white. For some reason, he's always a white guy with really... Blonde, or a blonde hair and super blue eyes, crystal blue eyes. He always has like a little sheep or a lamb next to him, and he's always happy. He's always happy, uh, probably because he's always providing people lunches. He's just this really, really nice guy. And the problem is oftentimes is that this is not the full picture of Jesus. Uh, for one, Jesus probably didn't have blue eyes, very likely did not have blonde, or blonde hair. Uh, Jesus probably would have looked like uh, just your, your average run-of-the-mill Middle Eastern person. That's who Jesus was. And yet oftentimes we have these pictures in our mind of who we think Jesus is. But the fact of the matter is, is that Jesus had sort of this part of him, the side of him that had, was very complex. And there were even moments that when we just think of Jesus as being always happy, we fail to see the fact that there were moments where Jesus was actually outraged. Um, I mean, there was an occasion where you imagine you walk up to Jesus and you're like he's sitting down braiding something. You're like, Jesus, what are you, what are you making, a bracelet? He's like, no, I'm making a whip. For what? Like, I'm going to go ballistic on people in the temple in just a few minutes here. Like, I'm going to take this whip out and start whipping people. Like, Jesus, like, you. I thought you were gentle and kind and really nice and blonde hair and blue eyes. That does not fit my version of Jesus. Like, Jesus, I'm going to blow your mind. And that's the type of Jesus that we should worship is one that blows our mind. It doesn't, He doesn't fit our concepts of him. Other Jesus is... Maybe like a social justice Jesus. This is a Jesus that is very invested in causes and microfinancing and debt relief and figuring out ways to solve social crisis and problems and invest in education and all that. And again, yet is very soft when it comes to the afterlife or the hope of heaven or confession of sin or emphasizing the need of healing in terms of uh, sinful type rebellion within our hearts. He's very Uh, silence about some of those things. Another Jesus might be this aggravated, lightning bolt-in-hand type of a Jesus. This is a Jesus that oftentimes appears uh, kind of on the front steps of football games with a bullhorn in his hand, yelling at people, telling them that they are sinners, they're going to go to hell, and God hates them. God thinks their lives are horrible. And this is the picture that the idea, the notion of any form of mercy or kindness or love in that Jesus in some ways is almost non-existent. Another Jesus I think of that's within pop culture, sort of the uh, prosperity gospel Jesus. This is the Jesus that basically is wealthy, and he wears a Rolex and drives a Rolls Royce and wears an Armani suit, and he's always looking for aims to somehow better your life, make you better, make you more prosperous. And another one I think of is like an emergent hipster type Jesus. This is the Jesus that brews his own beer. He's really into roasting his own coffee beans, uh, he watches Quentin Tarantino movies. He is a type of Jesus that when he's off stage, not preaching, he might cuss a little bit, say bad words every once in a while. His language is very vulgar, but that's, that's, that's this hipster, cool type of a Jesus that culture a lot of ways we want. And then finally, I think of the life coach Jesus. And this is the Jesus that is really interested in bettering your life. I mean, he's into giving you like six steps to helping you get financial freedom, seven steps to attaining the best life now, uh, 10 steps on how to invest in better relationships. This is the Jesus that really is just filled with advice. Follow this Jesus. Your life will be just really, really awesome. You may be prosperous. You look better. You'll get into more physical shape. Uh, your friendships will blossom, and everything will be amazing in, this, in your life because Jesus is your life coach. You call upon him, Jesus sort of accessorizes your life, so you call upon him when you're in need of help. Uh, he's there for you like a life coach. I mean, you can think of a lot of different, other different types of Jesus that we oftentimes see within our culture. There's like Fox News right-wing, uh, Republican-style Jesus. There's left-wing type of Jesus that's always angry with the right-wing Jesus, and the right-wing Jesus is always angry with the left-wing Jesus. And you have sort of this constant, ongoing, in some ways, schizophrenia when it comes to who is Jesus. At some point, we just want the real Jesus to stand up. And why does this matter, first of all? Why does all of this matter? Well, it matters because if you and I simply create a Jesus of our own liking. Our danger is that you and I want to, we want a Jesus that fits us, that fits our liking, that fits uh, and adapts to our best life now. So whatever it is that you're into, whatever it is that is passionate in your heart, we have the danger of making a Jesus that fits nicely and snugly and fabricated into that scenario of your life. We edit Jesus. The problem there is, first of all, that Jesus is created. You made him. Secondly, when your life truly begins to fall apart and fray and break down, that Jesus cannot heal you. He doesn't exist. So what we have to do is we have to allow Jesus to inform our understanding, to challenge our presuppositions, to contradict our ideas and our ideals And that Jesus is the Jesus that gives life. That Jesus is the Jesus that oftentimes offends me, but that offense is absolutely needed because at some point, the way I see the world needs to come to a screeching halt to show me I don't always see things rightly. What I need is I need a God that's bigger than me, greater than me, stronger than me, to inform me where I have blind spots. I think we would all agree we have blind spots. And this is what we see in the Bible. So with that, what we recognize is that the Bible actually begins to inform and shape our understanding as to who Jesus is, that we want this real Jesus to stand up and not just some sort of fake Jesus, bobblehead form Jesus that you buy at Urban Outfitters or not some sort of baby Jesus that Ricky Bobby prays to. We need the real Jesus that truly can save us. And this is where the scripture comes in to begin to inform our understanding as to who he is. Does that make sense? You guys with me? So what I want to do, I want to begin to jump in and really begin to ask the question, what does Jesus have to say about himself? Uh, But before we do that, I want to really emphasize, because the Gospels are really this account, the story, they're basically four biographies written by Jesus' good friends that give us information about who he is, that reveal to us what Jesus is like, what his words were, what his works were, what his actions were why his death was so important, why his resurrection is sort of this climactic moment of his life and really the beginning of all new life, that's what I want to focus on. But some of us may question uh, the reliability of the scriptures. So in other words, if we have mindsets that say, "I, I don't even think I can trust the Bible, then we're in a real dangerous scenario because we go back to this question, how can we really know the true Jesus? How can the true Jesus really stand up and actually we verify him if we discount or distrust the very documents that claim to portray him? You guys following me so far? So the question is, is how do we do this? And what I want to try to do is at least give you four quick answers or reasons why I think you actually can trust the New Testament. In particular, trust the four biographies known as the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. First of all, all of these were actually written by eyewitnesses. These were people, in other words, first-hand account that watched, saw, lived, ate dinner with, hung out with, walked along the road with. They, they, they were there with Jesus. These were the most reliable. So here's a good example. If you want to know anything about my wife, um, you, can, you can talk to her. But another way is that you can talk to me. I, I know everything about my wife. I know everything about her. There's, there's no secrets that we have. She knows everything about me. There are people that I know about, but I don't really know. I know that we have an African-American president. I know that he's been in office for almost two full terms. I know that he used to be in Chicago. I know that he's married to Michelle Obama. I know that he's got two daughters. But if I were to pass him on the street, he would have no clue who I am because he has no idea who I am. There's no relationship whatsoever there. There's certain facts that I have about him, some of us. This is where your Christianity stops. You have facts about Jesus. You know he was the son of God. You know he died on the cross. You know he did miracles. You know he said really neat things. You know he was kind of always making enemies. You know certain things. But that's where it ends. You don't know him personally. This is really an invitation for you to lay aside just simply surface knowledge of him to press into deep, true understanding, knowledge, relationship with him. And we do that through the scriptures. The scriptures actually reveal to us who he is. So first of all, we know that the New Testament, uh, in particular, the Gospels were actually written by eyewitnesses. The second thing is that they were written very shortly after Jesus' death, some between 20 to 40 years. The fact of the matter is why that's significant is because that means that there were actually still people on the ground, still alive, that had seen Jesus. Some of them were not followers of Jesus. So in other words... If they're reading these documents that are beginning to be circulated, we happen to know that once these documents were written, they began to be widely circulated, which meant they were actually uh, somebody invested money. We talked a little bit about this last week, that somebody invested a lot of money into that modern form of technology, which we look at as very archaic today, but back in that day, it was very modern. Uh, It meant taking out a pen, taking out a parchment or some form of papyrus, writing on it, and then being able to recirculate that document out there. So we know that copies upon copies were basically being written so... What that means is that there were people around there that were beginning to hear the Jesus story. And so when they hear stories about the Jesus story, Jesus healed people, Jesus brought about food, Jesus rose again from the dead, those that were there in Jerusalem um, could have challenged that, and they didn't. So in other words, uh, the fact that these were eyewitnesses and the fact that this was written very shortly after Jesus' death is very significant. Thirdly, is that the writers, the authors, were actually brutally honest about everything. They were very forthright about their own flaws. So in other words, when they wrote about themselves, or when they wrote about others that were part of their team, part of their group, their family, their church family, their community, they were brutally honest about them. And one of the most amazing things about this is that they actually attribute key roles to people of non-status. This is really significant. One of the chief examples of this is that when Jesus rose again, the first person that came in contact with the risen Jesus to verify the fact that this actually happened, happened to be a woman. Now, no offense to you ladies, but the fact of the matter is in the first century, a woman's uh, account of matters uh, was completely discredited. Uh, There there was basically just a social uh, malaise that did not place any uh, fact or attribute any any ability of recognizing, recognition in a woman's testimony. So if a woman were to basically like, hey, I saw Jesus... People would have been like, oh, that's nice, but we don't believe you. That was just the way that it worked. So why would the gospel writers actually record for us that it was women that saw Jesus first after he rose again from the dead? Because if they were simply trying to fabricate or make a brand new religion or form a myth that was believable, they certainly would not have used women as the means. Why would they do that? The only answer to that that most scholars have come up with is simply because that's what happened. They were just recording facts. So my point is that you can believe the New Testament account of Jesus' life. And finally, the writers really had nothing to gain. In other words, all of the authors of the New Testament documents, they had nothing to gain. There was no power, no fame, no money, no status. It's not as if, you know, by writing the New Testament, these guys were like going to be famed writers, marched, paraded through you know, uh, the entire circuit of cities, like, these are the writers of the New Testament. People are like, the writers of the what? I don't know what the New Testament is. I don't know who these people are. They're nobodies. Um, The fact is that these guys had absolutely nothing to gain. In fact, if anything, what they had was everything to lose. In fact, all of them, in fact, uh, minus a couple, actually lost their lives in horrible, uh, bloody types of fashions. All of them. So in other words, they wrote these documents because they were factual. They were just simply recording events on the ground as they saw them because they were true. And the story that Jesus, that they unfold to us about the life of Jesus is what has changed people's lives. And this is a story I want to invite you into to consider, to lay aside any false notions, ideas that you may have about Christ. And then begin to take a look at who Jesus is. So, Let's jump in and ask the question, what does Jesus have to say about himself? What does Jesus have to say about himself? Before we jump into this, one of the things I think we need to first of all address is that it's very important for us to understand, because some of us here may have already heard some of the passages I'm going to read, and for some of you, might be kind of like, I already know who Jesus is, so what's the big deal? Why do we got to go through this again? But here's what I want to suggest to you. Some of you are here this morning because you're not Christians. You are kind of investigating, trying to figure this out, some of you have some form of religious background, you're thinking about God, thinking about Jesus, um, but you need to investigate these claims for yourself and think about who Jesus is. So I'm glad that you're here. But some of you are Christians. By and large, many of us, most of us here, are people that have professed some form of confidence or trust in Jesus. We would call ourselves Jesus, or Jesus followers, not Jesus. Sorry. (laughs) Don't call yourself Jesus. That's blasphemy. Um, Unless your name is Jesus. Um, But the point is, Um, We would not call ourselves Jesus' followers, um, but most of us would call ourselves, if if we follow Christ, what we would do is is we would find ourselves perhaps in a dangerous camp whereby uh, the the story of Jesus does not intrigue us. We are not moved by it. So what I want to challenge you is that if you're a Christian and you followed Christ, and yet the story of this is kind of like, okay, great, we've got to take a look at some of this apologetic stuff and this idea about Jesus again. What I want to challenge you with is to think about Where's your heart with regard to being amazed by Jesus? Peter Kreef uh, is a philosopher, and he had kind of written some amazing things. He wrote a book called Jesus Shock, and it's really just kind of a book about addressing the issue of how we think about Jesus. Here's a couple of great quotes that he said, one that's not on there. He said this. He says, violence is spiritual junk food, but boredom is spiritual anorexia. Just think about that for a second. Violence is spiritual junk food, Right? We oftentimes eat it in large quantities, and yet it's just junk food. It doesn't feed us. In fact, it damages us. But boredom, spiritual anorexia, um, in other words, to put it into context, we hear about Jesus, we hear about these claims, these facts, and yet we are just unmoved. My challenge is for us to not be in that place, but that if we are in that place, that we would begin to see that this is an opportunity for us to turn from that. Here's what he goes on to say in this great quote. He says, I think Jesus is the only man in history who never bored anyone. Since Jesus was the only man in history who never bored anyone, it follows that if your Jesus is boring, your Jesus is not the real Jesus. If it's a tame lion, it's not Aslan. But here's what we do. We love to domesticate our versions of Jesus Because we want to make the Jesus that we worship as approachable, as chummy, as friendly as we can. And the problem is, like I would already laid out, is that Jesus ultimately in the greatest moments of our lives is powerless to save us because he doesn't exist. So what does Jesus have to say about himself? What are the words that he speaks? This is where I want to spend the rest of our time and wrap it up. Because Jesus has a lot to say about himself. And the New Testament writers have a lot to record about what Jesus had to say about himself. So allow Jesus to at least inform our thinking and our minds and our understanding as to who he is, rather than pop culture or rather than what my deepest desires of how I want to interface with him to be. Let's let Jesus speak. So here's a couple passages. Again, there's a lot to choose from. But what I want to draw from are what's commonly known as the seven I am statements of Jesus. And that just simply is another way of saying Jesus says, I am uh, seven different times throughout the Gospel of John, and I want to read through these real quickly. I'm not going to expound upon them very uh, very lengthily. Uh, I've a lot of time focusing on them. I just want you to listen to what they have to say and just think about them, meditate upon them, and just take them, for the most part, at face value. Uh, John chapter 1, verses 635 says this. Jesus speaks, and he says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. And... This is probably Jesus making an allusion to an Old Testament passage where God comes and he delivers what's called manna to the people that were there in the wilderness. In other words, they were hungry, they were in need, they were emaciated, and they needed help, and God comes to them and actually gives them bread to eat, and they're satisfied. They're given life, in other words. So the idea, that perhaps, that Jesus is conveying here is that I am a life, I'm the life-giving God-man. I'm here to give you life not just what I have to say, though my words are life-giving, but who I am, what I, who I am, my person is life-giving. John chapter 8, verse 12, he goes on to say, I am the light of the world, and he who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. This is an amazing promise, because what Jesus is saying, again, what's distinct from Jesus' teachings then say, from Buddhism, where Buddhism would say the teachings of the Buddha are enlightening. They're enlightenment. You follow his teachings, and you will reach a path of enlightenment. That is not at all what Jesus is saying. He's not saying, follow my teachings, though he wants us to follow his teachings. He's saying, follow me. There's a distinction there. Because on the one hand, we can follow principles and concepts and ideas. We have a term for that. We call them moralists. There are people that try to divorce the teachings of Jesus, the advice of Jesus from the person of Jesus, and they do the best that they can to live a moral life, to not sleep with their girlfriend or their boyfriend, to not get drunk or at least too drunk, to uh, not smoke any weed or crack crack or whatever, not do things that are really bad, not steal from people. And the point of the matter is they are trying the best they can to be moral, to live moral lives, but not necessarily doing it because they are motivated out of love for God, particularly love for Jesus. Um, And yet what Jesus would say is that you're still in darkness, So the question would be like, well, what is darkness? What's the darkness Jesus is talking about? And the fact is that darkness is really this moral darkness that we find ourselves in. It's darkness that comes from us knowing, us being aware of the sin that's resident deep within our own heart. And sometimes that may even be sin that's been committed against us by other people. In other words, what happens in our life, we find ourselves oftentimes steeped in darkness. Moments, dark moments of suffering, dark moments of anguish, dark moments of torment, dark moments of defilement. And what this word from Christ is to you and I is an invitation to say, Leave behind the darkness, not by trying to be moralistic. Leave behind the darkness by coming to, running to the light. That light is not a teaching, that light is a person. It's an invitation to be saved. It's an invitation be transformed this is so good news for some of us here today that feel as if your life has been nothing but steeped in darkness this is an invitation to leave behind that darkness and trust christ who brings us into light ninth or verse nine of uh, john chapter 10 the third one it says jesus i am, speaks and says i'm the door if anyone enters by me he will be saved and we'll go in and out and find pasture the fourth one, it says, John chapter 10, verse 11, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd brings life for a sheep. It's probably a reference, uh, really, on so many different levels. Uh, the phrase shepherd was a phrase very common throughout the Old Testament. Um, it, was a, it was actually a promise that was made by the prophets like Jeremiah and, and Isaiah, where God would one day promise, and he'll bring a shepherd. And the shepherd uh, was oftentimes synonymous with a leader, um, particularly the king. And what God is actually saying is that one of these days I will raise up a king and he will shepherd you, he will take care of you, not fleece you, not take advantage of you, not uh, destroy you, not crush you. But he'll give you pasture, he'll give you life. And what Jesus is saying, by this statement, I am the true shepherd. He's basically making this royal claim that I'm the king. I have come to give you life. I have come to bring my government into and over your life and you'll live. See, this is contrasted with the fact that we have this uh, tendency to think that we are already alive, that we're living based upon our own self-government, our own autonomous nature whereby I make decisions on my own. You know, uh, Peter Kreeft also says the, the song of hell is, I did it my way. Think about that. I did it my way. Like, that, that, that's why our world is broken. Do you understand that? That's why your relationships are broken. It's because we, we live our lives according to that song. We recite it, we repeat it, we live it. It's the default mode of our heart. And until something disrupts that, causes that record to break, another narrative, another story that says, no, 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 enter into my story, into my narrative, then we just continue on the cycle of death and brokenness. And what Jesus does is he basically says, I'm the good shepherd, I'm the good king. Uh, the fifth one is John 11, 25. He says, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me though he may die, shall live again. And this is, again, the picture that even though death is all around us, and this is the world we live in, everywhere we look, there is either death or the avoidance of it. And that's how we live our lives. That's and part of the problem is that a lot of us are, are, are young, and I say young, meaning mean like, say, sub-35. Uh, the tendency or the temptation is to think that we're indestructible. We'll always live. But the fact is, is that death becomes very real. I mean, we live in a culture, uh, by and large, in America, that has learned how to outflank or at least think they can outflank death. But we can not outflank it. At some point, it will come upon us. And what Jesus is saying to a world that was very graphically connected and aware of and affected and impacted by death, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and life. He who comes to me, he who lives in me will never die. And the fact of the matter is, is that we know this because what we see on Easter Sunday is that Jesus actually comes back from the dead. In other words, he has greater power than it. And the reality is, what the, all the rest of the New Testament is basically is this unpacking of this great, enormous truth that if you are in the Messiah, if you are in Christ the King, that the way the King went will also be the way of his subjects. Does that make sense? So if you are the subject of the King, that whatever happened to the King, even though it may happen to you uh, in terms of death and brokenness and suffering, the ultimate thing that happened to the King will also happen happen to you. You know what that means? Though we die, we will live again. Did you hear that? Our lives don't end at the grave. You know what that means? That means that we can afford to take unbelievable risks with this life. We can live passionately for Jesus. We can live boldly for Jesus. This is why we can go into places of this world that are dangerous and dark And challenging, because the question can come back, well, what if they take your life? Nobody can take my life. I mean, at the end of the day, if my life is taken, God will give it back to me. And it'll be better, it'll be greater than anything I could ever imagine, because so went the king, so will go his subjects. I'm in him, I'm in Christ. It's one of the reasons why Paul used that phrase over and over again. We are in him, in Christ. This is his way of saying that whatever happened to Christ will also happen to his subjects, his people. Jesus says, I'm the resurrection and life. Sixthly, he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Seventh, he says, I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. And all of these are statements that Jesus says about himself. And the fact of the matter is we can listen to all these things. And on the one hand, uh, we just think these are these are. Crazy statements. I mean, can you imagine a good friend of yours sitting down and saying each of these seven statements to you? Oh, hey, by the way, I just want to tell you I'm the resurrection life. You'd be like, who are you? Like, you're crazy. Are you, you're losing it. Like, nobody talks like that. But Jesus talked like that. So either Jesus was a total raving lunatic, and his words were absolute nonsense, or he was Lord, and his words were actually Well, how do we know that they're truth? Because of the event of the resurrection. He came back. He's alive. So, in closing, what's our response? Because one of the things that we realize that with Jesus, that when Jesus says stuff like this, um, we can think that these statements are tough, they're hard, they're challenging. We might even outrightly dismiss them and be like, it's just ridiculous. It's fallacious. But... None of us can hear these statements and remain neutral. You understand that? Like we can't hear, you, you cannot hear what Jesus says and just simply remain neutral. It, it says, in other words, it's like Jesus says stuff that basically puts us in a position where we have to form an opinion. But the opinion that we form about Jesus is actually either life-giving or death-generating. Life-giving or death-creating. And this is what we see on and on, over and over again throughout Jesus' life. And I'll finish with this passage. John chapter 6, verse 60, I'll read it to you. It says this. When many of the disciples heard it, Jesus, again, just said another one of his uh, statements that were very challenging and tough. It goes on, it says, when his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? So obviously, these guys were discussing and challenged and hard, uh, having a hard time understanding what Jesus had to say. And then it says, But Jesus, knowing in himself the disciples were grumbling about this, he said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives gives life. The flesh has no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning those who would not believe and who it was who would betray him. In verse 66, and then he says, and after this, many of the disciples turned back and no longer walked with him." So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. So again, the words of Jesus are not just simply advice. It's not just information. It's life. To turn to those words, to believe them, in other words, to imbibe them, to trust them, to be convinced of them, no matter how challenging they are. And let me be really clear to you that there are things that Jesus says that should be very challenging to you. In other words, if you hear everything that Jesus says and you never pause for a moment to be like, this is what? Is, he's actually saying give away stuff? He's actually, he's actually saying that? If you are never stunned and shocked by Jesus... I think perhaps it's because you are not listening rightly. Jesus should say things that contradict us or at least contradict our understanding of who he is because that process of reshaping, realigning, rebuilding our understanding is what it means to follow Jesus. But really at the end of the day, it boils down to what Peter said. That even though Jesus is what you had to say, I don't get. And Peter was constantly troubled by what Jesus had to say. Peter says, where else can we go? Um, last year, 2014, was a really tough year. Most of you guys know. Um, I had a surgery on my throat. In fact, it was just a little over a year ago I had a surgery on my throat. And I was kind of wrestling with the whole thought of, like, am I ever going to speak again? Do I have cancer in my throat? Am I going to have my throat box cut out? If it ever is able to speak again, will I sound like Michael Jackson? And I don't want to hear my voice. Like, I was, I was going through all this anxiety. Like, what's going to happen with my future? And there's a lot of dark moments where I just did not know what the future was going to hold for me. And there were moments where I just felt completely uh, at, at a loss with life in general. And I remember wrestling in my mind, like, what should I do? Where do I go? I'm not sensing, like, I, 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 in that season, I didn't feel God, I didn't hear God. I had people kind of ask me, like, what do you think God's teaching me through this? I honestly, I was like, I have no clue. I really have no clue. He's not speaking to me. I don't hear him. I don't know what he's saying to me. I mean, I'm sure he's saying things, but for some reason, my radio's not tuned in rightly or something's wrong or whatever the case is. Maybe he's just simply silent, and maybe that's what's going on. Maybe he's just wanting me to trust him in the midst of the silence. I didn't know what was going on, but I remember in my mind kind of processing and thinking, like, what are my options that are available to me? On the one hand, my one option is to completely go atheist. I'm like, that's probably not good for a pastor become an atheist. Uh, I got some issues with that, a little bit of a job conflict. But the point of the matter is I'm just like, I, I would never, I can't do that. That's not being honest with me. That would be committing intellectual suicide for me personally. I can't do that. Besides, I, I, I know too many atheists where I look at their life and I just, th- that's not a life-giving option to me. Uh, another option is just simply fake it, act as if everything is awesome. When people ask you, how you doing? I'm like, awesome, praising God, he's speaking to me, amazing volumes, it's incredible, Like, but I I knew that was not being honest with myself either. The other option was just like, I don't know, just feel like I'm constantly being tossed to and fro and have absolutely no idea, but know that God somehow underneath all of this is in control, even though I don't understand what he's doing, why he's doing it, or the outcome of all this. Where do I turn? I just remember in my mind just clinging to the words that Peter says, where else can I go? You alone have the words of life. I had nowhere else to really turn. And the question is to you, what do you think about the words of Jesus? What's your opinion? We have to have some form of opinion. I'm going to read this final quote. I um, have the worship team come on up and I'll finish with this. It's a quote from C.S. Lewis and I know some of you guys are like, I feel like every time I come he's always quoting C.S. Lewis. Yes, um, I love C.S. Lewis and sometimes I will trade him out for like a Tim Keller quote which actually is sort of a protege of C.S. Lewis, anyhow. So um, somehow C.S. Lewis gets interwoven in there. So I love C.S. Lewis, in any words. uh, uh, And I'm not apologizing for that. So here's what he has to say. It's a great quote. Um, This is out of Mere Christianity. He says, I am saying, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. In other words, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing that we must not say a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be a devil of hell. You must make your choice. This is the whole liar, lunatic, or Lord argument that Lewis makes. The fact is, is that when we hear the words of Jesus... They will either, either lead us to a place whereby we fight, we resist, and we go back to our little versions of Jesus that we've held to for many, many years. But I just simply ask you to consider the trajectory of that Jesus that you hold to. That's not the true Jesus. The trajectory, in other words, think 10 years from now, 50 years from now, where will that Jesus lead you? Will that Jesus help you when you're weak? Will that Jesus cleanse you from your sin when you feel defiled? Will that Jesus give you life when you're on the brink of death? Will that Jesus bring order to your chaos? Or turn to the true Jesus that reveals himself in the scripture as hard, as challenging as the words he says. Will you fall on your face before this God and say, I don't always get you, I don't always understand you? A lot of times your ways to make no sense to me, but you alone hold. Have and are the words of life. Where else can I go? And you press into him. That's what I want to encourage you to do. Press into this Jesus. So, some of you might ask, Well, how do I know I can trust him? Because what we see on the cross is a Jesus, this Jesus who doesn't just simply give us pithy statements, doesn't just give us advice. This is the Jesus that actually gives us something greater than that. He gives you himself. It's on the cross that the good shepherd became the slain lamb. It's on the cross that this door to the sheepfold found himself in this place of being shut out. It's on the cross that this light of the world was plunged into darkness. It's the darkness you and I experience it's the pain of separation that you and I feel of being cut off, being outside, being left out, that you and I, we always feel that we're trying to press into something to be accepted. It's all of that that Jesus says, I've done this for you so that you can be given a place, so that you can be given life, so that your darkness can be absorbed by my light and wholeness. This is the God that we need. This is the God that's accessible. This is the God that's here now. Let's respond to him. Let's all stand. We're going to close in a couple songs. We have communion in the back, and communion is a way of reminding us. So we take communion oftentimes. You can take it individually. Uh, we oftentimes encourage people to take it as a row, take it as a family, take it as a small group, take it as roommates, friends. It's something to do together. It's because communion is really about community. It's being brought into the community of God. Um, the bread that you eat are these little broken pieces and that's purposeful because at one point that little tray full of broken pieces of bread was once a whole piece of bread but it's broken in someone's hands. That's symbolic because that was our Savior. He was broken by the hands of men so that you and I who are regularly, frequently broken by the hands of men particularly by our own sin can actually be put back together again by the hands of God, let's respond to him.